Thanks, Pete, for leading us this far this morning. Let us open the scriptures and we'll continue in our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is our third message and there'll be a couple of more yet, God willing. So uh, just follow me as I read our passage today, commencing at verse 20 of chapter 15, running through to verse 28. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies, his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God be all in all. May God bless his word to us this morning. You know, most people love the fanciful idea of being free from schedules and timetables. But in reality that we know schedules and timetables are a necessary part of life. You may have a schedule like getting up at six in the morning or half past six and having to leave home at half past seven so that you can arrive at the office at eight o'clock and then you work through and maybe five o'clock is your knock-off time. That may be a typical example for many. And don't we love holidays that can free us from those kind of schedules? But the majority of our lives are built around and organised by schedules for work, even in the home, for the weekends... And even our holidays are all scheduled into the greater schedule of our lives. We depend on them. We actually adjust everything according to them. We work to the schedule's timing and there's usually serious consequences or there can be if we step out of line or get out of sync with our schedule. You arrive at work too late too many times and there will be a consequence. An hour late at the airport will possibly start a dismal, will be a dismal start to your holiday maybe. Go to a restaurant at five o'clock where on the door it says not open until six and you're going to go hungry for an hour. Schedules and timetables, whether we like them or not, we all live and have to abide by them. Otherwise, simply this life will not work for us. And as we think about that, there is another schedule 
a more important schedule that I want to draw your attention to this morning. This schedule actually involves every single human being that has ever lived. This schedule, this, this program has been set in place by God. And woe betide, might I say, woe betide any person who ignores or thinks he can escape the schedule. In other words, we really need to know and be prepared for this schedule that God has put into action for the entire human race. We really need to know this. We really need to understand it. In other words... The schedule that God has put in place is like a, it's a chain of events that can I say were kick-started and have been kick-started by the actions of both Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Both of these actions have spiritual and physical outcomes. And here in this section that we've read this morning, we can trace some of those outcomes and the schedule of events that follow the actions of these two men. We're going to be just tracking through this for a little while. And the first point that I want to bring to your attention is the Saviour has risen. We spent some time about on this last Sunday. We see this in verses 20 to 22. Because what Paul does here in this section, in verse, and, and, and particularly here at verse 20, is he, he returns to solid ground. He returns to solid ground after demolishing, because that's what he does, he demolishes this erroneous idea that Jesus Christ is still dead in the grave. He demolishes that. That's what we have in verses 12 to 19. And now he begins to build this solid ground, this proven fact of Christ's resurrection. He wants to make sure his readers and us here this morning, those who believe the gospel, he wants to make sure that we've really got this truth nailed down. Hence, he reaffirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ simply by saying in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, I want you to note that this statement in its grammatical setting carries a lot more weight that we can easily miss in our English translations, okay? So just bear with me briefly just to explain what I mean here. For example, we read the word but and we just skip over as one of those short three-letter words that hasn't got too much meaning. But this word in the Greek, it has the idea of setting something in absolute stark contrast. Okay? It sets it in contrast here with the error that is being promoted by some of the Corinthians who were believing that there's no resurrection of the dead. So, Paul says, here is the truth. It's a stark contrast. That's that word, simple word, but go along to the next word, next word, the word now. Or if you've got an ESV translation, it'll have in fact. This, this word means it's descriptive of how things really are. This gives the truth like a, the truth of the resurrection, a, a double affirmation as it were. This is how it really, really, really is. 
And then we go have a look at another word in that verse, the word raised. Once again, we may skip over it, oh yeah? But it's given in what we call the perfect tense, which means that Jesus Christ is permanently in a risen state. That's what that word means. In other words, this is more than just an historical event or or a fact of the past that came and went with no ongoing consequences. It's Okay? And so all this is to say is, let's no mistake, Jesus is alive now today. That's hallelujah material, right? Because this resurrection action of Jesus Christ holds the keys to a schedule of events for mankind. It does. Paul says this by calling the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what does he call it? He calls it in verse 20, end of, the first fruits of those who are asleep. You see that? And so what he means here is, he takes this idea from the Old Testament law, particularly from Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 10 and 11, where it required the man of the land, the farmer, the, the occupier of the land, to take some of his crop when it was about to be harvested or before it was to be harvested. He was to take the first part of his crop and, and, and offer it to the Lord at the tabernacle as it then was. It refers to a sheaf. So he was to take a sheaf of the, of the crop of wheat or barley, whatever it was, and he was to take it to the tabernacle and offer the first fruits to the Lord. Well, here we have a likewise offering. This offering was the first fruits. A deposit of the harvest that is to follow. Hence Jesus Christ arose and offered himself to the Father. He was the first fruits. An offering to the Father on behalf of all those who have died to sin and been made alive to Jesus Christ through faith in him. You see, all these people will follow Jesus in a future heavenly harvest. What this teaches us is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it can no way be in isolation from ours. The first fruits have been presented, that is Jesus Christ himself, and this kicks off a guaranteed divine schedule. God's table is now on cue for a mighty harvest of believers who are asleep to be transformed into the eternal presence of God. That's what this is on about here. But not only does Paul compare the resurrection of Christ to the first fruit of a mighty harvest to follow, he also contrasts, you will note in your text here, he also contrasts two men. One being Adam. We discussed him a little bit last week. One being Adam, who by his sin in the garden was a progenitor of all mankind being in sin, including every one of us here this morning. It was through Adam, as we discussed, came death, remember? We see that in verse 21. And through all, uh, through Adam, what does it say in verse 22 as well? All die. And so through Adam came death, and it's through Adam that all die. So we all, without exception, from nobility, can we say, to the ordinary, are all under God's condemnation of both physical and spiritual death. And we discussed that, what it meant last week being cut off from God and under God's condemnation. 
This is explained in the same way, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 19 of Romans, where it says, when Paul says again, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. And it continues, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This clarifies here, this clarifies the sinner's great need. It surely does. The sinner needs a saviour. The sinner needs a rescuer. The sinner needs a redeemer, right? The sinner, after all, is in deep trouble. With God's condemnation hanging over him, he is not only going to physically die, but he's spiritually dead to God. And he cannot help himself. So here is the only answer to man's problem. We see it in the contrast of second man. In verses 21, it says, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. See that? And then again at the end of verse 22, So also in Christ will all be made alive. The first man through his action brought us sin and death. The second man brings righteousness and eternal life. Now don't get carried away with the idea that this contrast teaches that as all are sinners through Adam, so all, that means every single person in the world ever born, will be made alive. That is, be eternally saved. We call that error, and it is an error, we call that universalism. Some, some men teach that. It's not, never is taught in scripture. It's an error. Not all men will be saved. When I say men, I'm talking about humankind, men and women. The scriptures never teach that all, like every person, will know and experience the salvation of God. It doesn't teach that. Here is what it teaches. This section here. We all are what? We're the descendants of Adam, right? Not only physically, but because Adam sinned spiritually. We're all sinners. And so that's a given. But not all the, but not not all are descendants of Jesus Christ. So the idea of all here is in relation to being a descendant. We're all descendants of Adam by nature. We're all the sons of Adam. And even spiritually, because Adam sinned, we're sinners before God. But not all are descendants of Jesus Christ. Not all mankind is in Christ or born again into God's family. And we start to read that in verse 22. Yes, as I was discussing with someone last week, it is true that there will be a resurrection of all, of all dead. Even the unsaved, even the ungodly person, there will be a resurrection. Based on the fact that because Christ arose, there will be a resurrection of all dead. There will be a resurrection of all those who have died in Christ, those who are asleep in Jesus, true. But also there will be a resurrection of all those still under the condemnation of sin and they will be cast into the lake of fire. We're told that very clearly in Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 14. But here in our text, this is what we're dealing with this morning, here in our text, it's all about Christ and his ransomed children. It's all about his children who have been made alive spiritually by God's grace alone through faith alone who will one day be made alive physically just as the Lord Jesus is right now in heaven. That's what it's talking about here. 
folks all will be made alive like the Lord. The harvest will follow. Every truly born again believer will be like the Lord. And so all those saints that have passed from here and all those saints that will pass on and maybe even some of us here in this room who have trusted Jesus Christ will be made alive and we will be like Jesus Christ in heaven. The harvest will follow. Our bodies, whether in the grave or still living even, will be transformed in that day. So those who are still alive are not going to miss out. There's coming a day in God's scheduled program when all will be transformed. Verse 52 of the same chapter tells us that event. It says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Verse 52. That we're made into his likeness where our mortal bodies will put on immortality. We will receive a body suitable for heaven. Oh, what a day that will be. Amen. This is the hope, the blessed hope we have based on the solid rock of our Saviour. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Amen. Secondly, the saved will follow. Verse 23. Paul moves on from the first Adam and sin's consequences and now he majors on the second man, Jesus Christ. He does this by giving us a broad outline of the schedule of events that rests solely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells his readers the schedule, the overall plan that God will unfold according to his timing and which follows Christ's resurrection. As we read this and as we understand this, please keep in mind that this is a very condensed reference here. A very condensed. It's very broad. More specifics of these events are given in other parts of the scripture we have not time to go into this morning. But here Paul makes clear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has set in motion a chain of events that we can either take great comfort in or take as a severe warning. He speaks of three events here. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ being the prime mover, the kickstarter, can I say, and I say that reverently, and that prime moving event guarantees two other events. So the divine order is set with, first of all, Christ being the first fruits in his resurrection and ascending to heaven. And secondly, then we have after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then thirdly, then comes the end. And we'll expand on then comes the end in our next point. So as we've discussed brief, briefly so far, Christ being the first fruits, we now need to understand that the next event to follow in God's schedule is those who are Christ's at his coming. That's the next thing. That's the next happening. The scriptures are very clear in that as Jesus came the first time in his incarnation as a babe to the manger, so will Christ come a second time as a king and as a ruler and as a judge. His first coming, as it was a sacrificial lamb, to die for sin 
where he was despised and humiliated and crucified on the cross, the next time will be a gathering time. A gathering time. And a time of judging. The Lord of the harvest will gather all true believers in Christ. They will be caught up or snatched away in the twinkling of an eye, as we've already referred to in verse 52 of this chapter, to be forever with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, well-known verses to many of us. They have have another more specific description of how this first takes place, or the beginning of this, this, this uh, new period. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And listen to this, And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This is what we call the parousia. Okay, that means this coming is more than just a coming, and that's it, and may whatever happens after that. This is the parousia is describes the coming of the Lord, but it also describes the ongoing, continue, never ending presence of the Lord. More so than we have now. Okay? That's what I was saying before. Is he really king? Is he really reigning? He is, but not yet. But he's going to be one day. And so this is, this is the parousia, the coming of the Lord. Now here's a question. I want to ask every one of you, every single one of you, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Because this is going to happen, right? As he came the first time as a babe in Bethlehem that we remember at Christmas, he is surely coming the second time. You better believe it. Not because I say it, because the word of God says it. Are you ready for this? Paul said to the Thessalonian church after he told them specifically that we've just read, he says, comfort one another with these words. He told the believers, comfort one another with these words. In times of persecution, in times when when, when death was, was snatching at their doorway and some had already died, they were to comfort one another with these words that Jesus Christ is coming and will take us all home, all those who trust in him to be with him in heaven. I wonder, are you comforted knowing that Christ has risen and he is the first fruits of a mighty harvest of his people scheduled to happen at any time? Are you comforted with that? Or does it alarm you? We're not told of the specific timing of this event either, by the way. Scriptures tell us in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, it says, no man knows the day or the hour when the Lord himself will come. But we are told the order of God's schedule. Are you ready for this? This is the the next thing that's going to happen in God's timetable. As I said before, today is man's day. Where rulers and kings and presidents and, and good men and bad men rise up and take power and think they've got the world in their hands. God is still in control, but he's allowing man to flex his muscle until this day. Until this day. Are you ready for this? Are you saved from the wages of sin, which is eternal death? Have you trusted 
entrusted your life and your soul and yourself by faith into God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Because if you have not, be warned. Be warned and take action. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved before it's too late. For it is only the saved that will follow him into eternal heaven. And thirdly, we come to the subjection of all things. We see this in the last little section of verses 24 to 28. And Paul takes us further in this very condensed, as I said, very condensed schedule of God's resurrection plan for his people. He takes us to this third aspect of the then comes the end. This is all about the fulfilling and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ who will subdue all things and hand over all things to his heavenly father. This is going to happen. He tells us here of the end. It's the word telos. How this end will see a time of reckoning and ruling under the reign of Jesus Christ. So this end, it doesn't mean say it just comes up and stops and, and nothing else. This end describes a period of time that will begin and will Continue on for hereafter. The end covers the restoration of all things as well as the subjection, the handing over of all things to the Father. This third phase, can we say, will include also, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but a period where the Bible speaks about coming upon this world as the great tribulation. And you can read all about that in Matthew 24 and 21. Go to the Old Testament and read some of the prophets like Daniel. They will tell you about this. So this end will include this period where the Lord will pour unprecedented wrath out upon the nations and he'll discipline his people Israel like this world has never seen before. It will also include another period of time that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 of a thousand literal years where Jesus Christ will reign literally from Jerusalem over the world of nations. A fantastic time. I'm hanging out for that. The end is the culmination of God's sovereign plan for man and mankind and everything that has been marred by sin. And through these cataclysmic events, the risen Lord, listen to this, the risen Lord will abolish all rule and all authority and all power that dares to raise its head against him. He will abolish it. This is where Psalm chapter 2 kicks in, right? You know what Psalm chapter 2? I'll read it for you. And, and it's a, a strange psalm because this is one of the only places in the scripture where we read of the Lord laughing. And he has every reason to laugh. It's not a laugh of mock and mirth, but it's a laugh of, well, I'll read, you, I'll read you. This is what Psalm 2 says. When the nations of the world will rage and the peoples of the world will plot in vain. That's a fairly good description of the world right now, right? 
They're raging against even one another. Even our own nation and Western nations are raging against God's commands about morality and ethics and all those things that we hold so precious. The world is raging and they're plotting in vain. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Stop right there. What an avid description of how the world, more than ever today, wants to do away with any of the constraints of the Holy Scriptures and of the true God of creation. Even right down to the evolutionists who say that, no, this world was not created. They want to deny the existence of a power and authority that is above and higher than them. But look how the real Lord responds to that. Verse 4, chapter 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in their fury. This is that tribulation period I'm speaking about where men will literally call upon God to, to, to they'll crawl into the mountains and ask for rocks and mountains to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the true God. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Folks, the Lord Jesus will reign. He will. The end includes this time when he will and he must reign, having put all enemies under subjection. Why? Because he is the risen saviour. He's the Lord of all. Then the last enemy to be abolished, we see in verse 26 of our text here today, is the enemy of death. How fantastic that will be. No more death. Death is abolished. That's mankind's greatest enemy, right? We're all faced with it, even as Christians. Death we're not, we're not excluded from that because that's one of the consequences of sin. Physical death. We're not excluded from it. But it will be abolished. The curse of Adam's sin will be reversed. Death will be no more in the end. The battle over death was won at Christ's resurrection. Sure, when Christ arose, death, the battle was won. It's a bit like D-Day. The writing was on the wall. The die was cast. When Christ arose, death knew it was beat. And praise the Lord, V-Day is coming. Victory Day is coming, right? Old man, death and sin and Satan himself will be abolished forever in the end. You read Revelation chapter 20, it tells you clearly about that. That he cast into hell. They'll be done with, finished forever. But that's not all, because in this brief view of the end, we see the servant son, the risen Christ, having completed his final work. Having conquered all things, subdued all things, and judged all the enemies of God, what does he do? He then creates the heavens and the earth. We read about that. This is another time of a thing included in the end. He recreates the heaven and the earth, Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. And in this new heaven and new earth, all things will be perfect. There'll be, this is where there will be no more tears. We read there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. Why? Because the first has passed away. It's gone forever. All things are new. Again, Revelation 21 verse 1. This final end of all things is now complete. 
The Lord Jesus' redemptive assignment is now finished. His work is done. Then this amazing transaction takes place between the servant's son and the Almighty Father. Isn't that wonderful that we can have a peek into what's awaiting us, okay? We don't need no fortune teller. We, we, we know exactly what's going to happen to the world and what's before us. So, so we can take great comfort in this word. Then this amazing transaction takes place. A transaction that is beyond probably even right now our full comprehension. This is where the son, the servant's son, who has completed his work, hands over his, this, this perfect kingdom to his father. The kingdom that has no end, Luke chapter 1 verse 33. The kingdom where only righteousness dwells, Second Peter 3.9. The kingdom indwelt by myriads of redeemed of the Lord. Revelation 22 verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the, the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city, the new heavens and the new earth, the new kingdom, the perfect kingdom. Wash their robes by faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, it's only on the foundation of the resurrected Christ that anyone can be there. And that's what Paul's point is in this whole chapter. Simply this, if there was no resurrection, there would be no subjects to inhabit the eternal kingdom of God. That's his point. Then we see in verse 27, verse 28, the servant son of God, having fulfilled his servant role, uh, beginning at his, at his carnation as a babe in the manger, uh, until he, he hands over the perfect eternal kingdom, what does he do? The Lord then takes up his former role in the Trinitarian Godhead. He takes up his former role. Remember, he prayed for this in John 17. Lord, give me back that glory I had. This is where it all happens. It says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjected under him, that God may be all in all. What happens here is Jesus Christ will continue to reign because we are told in Revelation 11 and verse 5, and that is the seventh angel sounds, it says here, the seventh angel sounds, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. But the reign of the Lord Jesus will be with the Father. You see that? He will be one with the God in Trinitarian glory. Because we believe that God is one, but three persons, unique. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He will subject himself to the Father as was his eternal design in the Godhead. That's what he'll do. He hands over him the keys of this perfect kingdom and then continues his former role in this Trinitarian Godhead. Folks, will all of you here this morning be involved and be a part of that reign of eternal glory that Christ has prepared?
That's a question you need to answer every single one, will you? It's a vital question that you need to be able to answer with clarity. But clarity can be yours only on the basis of personal faith. Personal faith in the risen Christ. Not personal faith in a religion. Personal faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because by faith alone, God will have mercy upon you and by his grace you will be saved and you will enjoy that eternal kingdom. That's it. That's it. I trust you have been blessed this morning uh, with this word. We'll, I was going to have a, another hymn, but we will dispense of that owing to time gone. And uh, just let me close with a benediction from... First Peter. Maybe you can stand for this, please. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11 says this, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And the people of God said, Amen.